Hey church family, for the past few weeks, we have begun our journey through the book of Galatians. Last week, we started chapter three and we heard from Pastor Chris about how the ways that we respond to the world really should change as we align ourselves to the priorities of God and as we identify ourselves with the crucified Christ. Today, we continue our journey in the book of Galatians. We're reading from chapter three, verse 15 to 25, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case, God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children, as if it meant many descendants, rather it says to his child. And that of course means Christ. This is what I am trying to say. The agreement that God made with Abraham could not be cancelled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put this another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian, the Word of God. So I shared some of this story a few weeks ago with our youth, but I wanted to share it with the whole church today. When I was 10 years old, I moved to New Zealand, all the way from Australia, Uh, And at the time, I was devastated because I wasn't going to become the surfer boy that I had imagined and dreamed that I could be. But that disappointment was quickly set aside with the realisation that living in New Zealand meant living next to snow. I was so excited. Several times every winter, we got to go on ski trips. And I remember the first time I was ever learning to ski. They say what you should do is you should get a lesson just to pick up some of the basic skills. And so my parents enrolled me and I put these big clunky plastic boots on for the first time and got my skis. And I went over to where the instructor was. And they teach you two things on that first lesson. The first thing I learned was how to fall down so that I didn't break something or hurt myself too badly. And the second thing that I learned was something affectionately known as the pizza turn. Uh, The pizza turn is simply the very refined skill of going down a slope, realising you're going perhaps a little bit quicker than you ought to, or you're not quite feeling very confident, and so you make a wedge shape with your skis, and you use that wedge shape to drive a turn. 
and that slows you down and you smoothly move into a turn and then you can wedge back around the other way and wedge back around the other way and successfully and safely make your way down the slope. Here's the thing about the pizza turn though. It's not really designed for the more intense and steeper slopes. Really, it's just designed to get you off the ground and get you started. Once you're getting better, you learn or you pick up something we call the parallel turn. Now, the parallel turn is simply you keep your skis pretty side by side and you learn to turn with your whole body a lot smoother and a lot quicker to kind of slalom down slopes as needed. Well, I remember fast forward a couple of years past this point and I thought I was getting pretty good. And I decided that it was time to do my first ever black diamond run. Black diamond just means it was really hard. Um, and so <laughs> I got to the top of this run, to the top of this giant chairlift, and I was up there with one of my school teachers who was from Switzerland, and he'd been skiing his whole life, and I thought, if I'm with this teacher, I will be fine, everything will be okay. So we start going down the track, and we reach this point where it looks like and feels like I'm staring down a cliff of snow that I somehow have to get down. I look at my teacher and he looks at me and he says, do you want me to go first? I said, yeah, yes, please. And so he goes and he starts these perfectly executed parallel turns and he gets halfway down and he looks so smooth and so fantastic. And then he hits an ice patch and goes, I kid you not, head over heels down the entire rest of the slope until he collapses in a heap at the bottom. Now, I'm still at the top, and suddenly my confidence is gone. And I think, my goodness, how am I going to get down this slope and not die? I have a brilliant idea. I think, why not go back to the basics? Why not go back to my pizza turn? Because that worked so well to try to keep the, the speed down as I turned down hills. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. And I go sort of just off the edge and I go along the slope a bit because I was still too nervous to try my first turn. And I started to turn down the slope in my best pizza wedge, but there was a problem. I got halfway through this turn and I feel like I was doing 100 miles an hour and I was screaming for my entire life. I was like, it was terrifying and it did not work at all. And what I discovered that day is that the pizza turn wasn't really designed for higher level skiing. Well, I was way too nervous to go back to the parallel method that may have got me down the hill. So I came up with a different ski tactic, all of my own, and that is the sit-down turnaround. I would go along the slope, I would fall into the slope, turn my skis around one at a time, go along the slope, fall into the slope, and repeat until about 30 minutes later, I made it to the bottom of that one tiny little stretch of my first ever black diamond run. So I survived that day clearly because I'm still here, but I feel a little bit like I also only just barely survived that day. As I became more skilled, I discovered really that the parallel turn is the thing that actually allows you to conquer the more difficult slopes. It's what allows you to really enjoy the art of skiing and to really find freedom on the slopes of skiing. It's the thing that kind of gives you life on the snow when you've got two sticks attached to your feet and you're wondering, how on earth am I going to get down? 
But back to Galatians. Let's read again verses 16 and 17. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. And notice that the Scripture doesn't say to his children as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child. And that, of course, means Christ. This is what I am trying to say. The agreement that God made with Abraham could not be cancelled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. Now, one of the things that that happens, or at least it happens to me when I read the New Testament, is we can miss some of the assumed knowledge and the layers and background to what the author is referring to. In this case, as I read that, I immediately think, well, what promise? And, And Jesus is somehow Abraham's child? And well, I mean, who's Abraham? And and the law was somehow cancelled or maybe rather like not cancelled by the promise or the, the, the promise didn't cancel. What is going on, Paul? To see what Paul, the author of Galatians, is talking about, we need to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. So I'm going to read now from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. This is a time before the nation of Israel actually existed, and we get some insight into the life of their patriarch, Abram, who later would have a name change to Abraham. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Well, this promise from God continues and is repeated multiple times in multiple different ways to Abraham throughout his life. The original language that this promise was written in or that this passage was written in is ancient Hebrew. And the word used to talk about Abraham's descendants and the way that all the families on earth would be blessed through his is the word that we would directly translate into English as actually seed. It was Abraham's seed. And Paul is stating in Galatians that this promise of every family on earth being blessed through the seed of Abraham or through the family line of Abraham or through the descendants of Abraham, what Paul is stating is that this promise had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who would be the son of Mary a couple thousand years after Abraham, Mary, who was an Israelite, an Israelite, which meant a direct descendant of Abraham himself. But Galatians continues by saying that 430 years later was a law and that somehow that law muddied the waters for this promise of blessing. If we fast forward from this moment in Genesis by 430 years, we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 20. The people of Israel have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years and God miraculously saves them and rescues them. God shows His favour to these people. He cares for them and He's leading them back to the promised land that He promised to Abraham. During this journey, God gives them the law. We see this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 to 3. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. 
God goes on to give His people what we call the Ten Commandments, which we often think about as the big laws that help to dictate what is and isn't moral in the eyes of God. After this chapter, the law-giving seems to continue for quite some time, continues for most of the rest of the book of Exodus, most of the book of Leviticus, and then it's retold and, and added to and some of the language is changed for a new generation of Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy. These sections of the Bible, these laws, which if you go through them all is hundreds of laws, they became the driving momentum and rhythm for Israelite life in the Old Testament. Over time, these laws became the marker of who was and wasn't holy, of who was and wasn't a part of the club, of who was and wasn't a person of God, who was and wasn't saved. If you kept the law well, you were one of the good ones. And if you screwed up, well, you weren't. Then Jesus arrives on the scene. He lives a life in perfect alignment with God, but somehow, ironically, this looks somewhat different to the life that the lawmakers and the law keepers of that time were actually living. Jesus then dies the death that the Bible teaches opens the way to life for all humanity. And on the third day, Jesus is raised back to life again, which the Bible says is proof that people can be restored to God, restored to life, restored to freedom, and one day restored for eternity. The Galatians church, a little while after this, is trying to wrestle with all of these realities, with a faith that values and upholds the law, that sees the law and organisation and order as something that they should strive for. They have teachers that tell them that keeping all of that law really actually is the precursor to Christianity and hasn't been replaced by Christianity. And they're trying to balance and reconcile that with the gospel of Jesus. The gospel that says, I have promise and grace and freedom and goodness and all you need to do is believe in what I have already done. So what is Paul's answer to this wrestle. This is why he wrote, I believe, the book of Galatians. Or in some ways, maybe the question that we're really asking from this particular passage at least, is what is the role of the law in the life of the Christian? That's kind of the big question with everything in mind and looking at the Old Testament that he references and Jesus and now this church that's wrestling, what is the role of the law in the life of the Christian? Well, let's look back at Galatians 3 again, this time reading verses 21 and 22. Is there a conflict then, Paul asks, between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not, Paul says. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the Scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Paul looks at this conflict between the, the law and the promise and what he says is, I want you to know that the law doesn't save you. That the life of the Christian really is from Christ, in Christ and through Christ. The law, though helpful to pointing out sin, helpful to perhaps limiting sin, helpful to plainly identifying what was and wasn't sinful, the law cannot and can never lead to life. The law was never the thing that led to righteousness. This is the big point that Paul is trying to make. It's kind of like my skiing story. 
I was stuck at the top of the mountain trying to use the wrong tool. The pizza turn was never designed to help me ski well or freely or confidently down difficult slopes. The pizza turn was actually designed to get me just off the ground to begin with, to stop me from falling too hard and too badly as I first learned to ski. But it's the parallel turns that give the freedom and the ability to enjoy the mountain. In the same way, the law was never designed to give life. If we try to find life and salvation and rest in the law, we never will. This wasn't its intention to begin with. The promise came before the law and the promise will still be in place throughout eternity when the law is no longer needed. Righteousness came to Abraham through faith that God would keep his promise. Righteousness and holiness comes to us through faith in Jesus. Faith that Jesus has on our behalf already done everything necessary to receive the promise. This is His work and His life and His death and His resurrection. Jesus lived the life that we could never live, then died the death that we were supposed to die and was resurrected in glory to open the door for us to step into eternal life. Of what purpose then is the law? Perhaps the law is the reminder that we need to keep looking to Jesus. The realisation that there is nothing that you or I can do in and of ourselves to attain holiness, to be found and counted as righteous. The law actually helps me to realise that 100% of the promises of God come from God towards His people. There's no conditions on God's promises. There's just a willingness on my part to step into them or to choose not to. Maybe this is another way of putting it. The law keeps you humble as you walk with Jesus. The law propels you forward to the foot of the cross, the throne of the Saviour. The law propels us forward that, that we might live in awe of Jesus, that you might live in awe of what He has done for you, that you might live transformed towards the things of God. Not because you have learned to keep the law, but because in believing the promise and the gospel of Jesus, you have received the Spirit of God and you've begun to walk in the Spirit. You take a step in the Spirit-filled life and then another and then another. And as you walk, as God's Spirit that lives in you starts to do His thing, it starts to shift the desires of your heart. The Spirit starts to transform the way that you interact with the world, the Spirit starts to change the way that you view the people around you. Then all of a sudden, one day, the fight for justice and equality on earth becomes a part of the mantra of your soul, almost like it's bubbling up from within you. Then all of a sudden, one day, the Sabbath isn't something that you do because of some obligation to a law or out of fear that it hinders your salvation. The Sabbath becomes an intimate blessing in your walk with God. All of a sudden, one day, you become less concerned about have I done enough good to outweigh the bad and instead you do the good because there is this overabundance of love and grace that flows from within you. I could keep going But I think you're starting to get the picture. As you walk in the Spirit, transformation comes from a place that is beyond the law. I'm going to say that again because I think this is the key point that Paul is making. You ready? 
As you walk in the Spirit, transformation comes from a place that is beyond the law. It comes from a place of holiness within you that is found only in the belief that you have freely received the promise of God in Jesus. And the Spirit is the one that moves you forward in the Christian journey. So what is the place of the law in the life of the Christian? Is the law at odds with the promise of the gospel? Not at all. The law and the promise are two different things that serve two different purposes. The law that informs you when you fall and the gospel or the promise that leads you into life. But be assured of this today, the Christian life was never about your ability to keep the law. It always has been and always will be about believing the promise of Jesus.